Greetings, citizens, and welcome to another episode of The Cavern Today. Dalkin Starbine here, hosting your podcast this time. This month we bring you a cheery, <clears throat> little cast in which we discuss the ability of secondary developers carrying on a given franchise, the future of PC gaming, iRiven, and more. After that, we'll finish up with a piece by Jeff Wise who wrote it for his very own wedding. So, without further ado, we present to you Episode 7 of The Cavern Today. Welcome to TCT Talk. Usually this is our roundtable chatterbox about the goings-on in the cavern, but because there haven't been many goings-on in the cavern lately, this is probably going to be a little bit more an over-the-fence-oriented talk today. So here with us today we have... Janathus. And me, Jeff. Wise. And also me, Morris. So let's get started. Um, first on our agenda for today. This is a point invented by me. I follow a couple of shooter game franchises, uh, Fear 3 being one of them, Call of Duty Black Ops being the other. I noticed that both of these sequels, you know, to these popular franchises, because, you know, Fear 1 and Fear 2 were by Monolith, and I don't actually know the name of the company doing the third one, and Call of Duty Black Ops is by what we call the B team for Call of Duty. It's Treyarch, not actually Infinity Ward. Um, These are being shepherded by developers who did not create the franchises. But, keeping with the Myst vibe, we've had Myst 3 and 4, and... Cyan was involved, but didn't develop it. So my question here is, is the original developer necessary to carry the torch for a franchise? I'll I'll start with this. Really, what it seems to boil down to is, just on a case-by-case basis, who is the one who's shepherding the franchise in the first place? In the example you used, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, Treyarch has had some pedigree with uh, shooters in the past. They made the excellent uh, Call of Duty World at War which kind of mm-hmm. took some of the tech that they created for uh, Call of Duty uh, Modern Warfare 1 and uh, kind of placed it back in World War II setting and added new fire tech that they were really proud of. And it was really great. You know, while soldiers would sc- scramble up like palm trees and stuff, and you just set it on fire with a flamethrower and watch them burn and fall to the ground while you laughed maniacally. You know, yeah, I noticed uh, <laughs> Black Ops also has flamethrowers in it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they're very, very proud of that. I, I noticed there's lots of fire in uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, so, so that's kind of like, that's the one thing we did better than Infinity Ward. <laughs> well, but here's the thing, though. Um, the Fear 1 was by Monolith, and Monolith uh, has a very special place in my heart because they did No One Lives Forever, No One Lives Forever 2. Uh, but they have had some missed shots in there, like they did uh, 
parts of No Man's Forever 2, especially like they regurgitated the same map twice in the game. It's like, you know, way to reuse assets and waste my time with the same map. Uh, and there's flip side, uh, they did something called Contract Jack, which was them trying to pander to the Doom lot who wanted a, a fast-paced action shooter that didn't involve a lot of stealth and strategy. But when they did Fear, supposedly when they did Fear, that was the game that they wanted to do when they did Null, but they were contracted to do Null Less Forever. But in the meantime, there there was like a, uh, expansion packs or standalone things that, or and other Fear games like Perseus Mandate. And I played the demo, and the demo told me not to buy that game. But then I got to Fear 2, and the first demo, I noticed it was very much made for the consoles. Like, the game felt more console-like. But later on, I was in the need of a violent shooter, and that's the one I went to, and, mm-hmm. you know... It actually ended up being very enjoyable. But now Fear 3 is looking like it, it's taken where the games had kind of a push and pull between action in normal environments, which is what I like about games where you're playing in a world that's a little more grounded. And But they had a little bit of uh, the paranormals, uh, a la like The Ring or uh, I can't think of uh, The Grudge, horror like that, you know, where things kind of start and stop really quickly, the screen flashes really quickly, things like that. And Fear 3 looks like it's going to be pretty much the world has gone to crap and we're going to see it all face front all the time. And But that's because the Fear 3 is by somebody else. you know. So I, I kind of have this, If I hope there's a demo so I can get a sense for whether I like it or not because I'm, I'm too iffy to buy it. Same thing with Black Ops. is I, uh, I, I ended up buying it because my friends are playing it, not because I wanted it. And now that I own it, I'm kind of back to Modern Warfare 2. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not always a fan of, you know, I, I don't believe that these franchises can be carried forward well by people in all cases. Um, as Jeff and Jeff was mentioning in our pre-show, uh, Miss 3 was well done because the people that did it were, you know, uh, True Blue Adventure Gamer Company. Mist 4, I think, left a lot of people dry because, you know, Moog made the point pretty clear that uh, years ago that, you know the solution to the puzzle, but now the problem is executing the solution. Whereas myths tend to be, once you figure it out, you can just do it. The majority of the TCT staff still hasn't finished Mist 4. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was very sort of proud of myself for actually being able to get through it in like a reasonable span of time, actually. Uh, yeah. And I remember that because I would go back to the uh, uh, Mist forums and I would see people complaining, you know, why is it? I'd be like, ha ah, ha. I didn't even use a help guide, you what guys. I, what I always try to help do. Guide. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> the game had a help guide built into the interface I of the know. game itself. Yeah. But the, the problem I have with, with uh, that game is it's not fun on replays to me. Uh, uh, if you're I, just staring at the environments, I find it is. Yeah, what I tend to do, because because the puzzles are uh, are big roadblocks, so what I would do is I would like oh, yeah. I would make incremental saves. So I can, you know, this is the save after I beat this puzzle. This is the save after this. The problem is they limited the amount of saves, so I had to be strategic with which ones I picked. But in any case, um, so that point is well, well met. I think that, you know, sometimes the the franchise can actually have a good outing by another developer. And yeah. if you use sales as an indicator, Black Ops is more of a success than Modern Warfare 2. But I, I am not so sure that that is telling as much as, you know, it's just a sheeple thing. Well, if you want to look at it, for example, compare it to the other big shooter that came out at about the same time, which was the kind of the reboot of Medal of Honor, where they yeah. tried to make a modern warfare version yeah, of the but, but uh, Medal of like, Honor game. You know, I understand that they're trying to get in on what Modern Warfare 2 man- managed, 
and they brought two people into the into the fray to do exactly what they thought it was necessary to get the job done. Then the beginning and ending of the problem is though, I don't think that they had people who had the love. You know, mm. they were trying to replicate what another company was able to manage. I don't know. It's just when it, exactly. when it's a B two offering, I just don't think it was going to work that way. And and I knew it was going to work. You know, but people played it and enjoyed it. The single player and the multiplayer are as different as yin and yang. They're just completely different. Mm. And, and that's what I see as the big difference between Mist Three and Mist Four. Mist Three was made by you know the same team that made the the excellent uh, Journeyman Project games, which were both oh, fantastic really? adventure games. Or I don't know. There maybe there's a third one now. I, I thought that uh, probably four and is. three were made by the same team, or like largely the same team. Uh, they no, were both no. by they were both commissioned by Ubisoft, but no, Presto but, Studios did three, and four was uh, I want to say it was Montreal. Well, it yeah. Was, I mean, they 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 took uh, Ubisoft Montreal and then had a subgroup that they dubbed Team Revelation, uh, and I guess they were and sort of handpicked them to design the game. And their favorite missed game was Riven, so you know I thought you know we had some definite. Uh, Potential there. Well, it's like it's like I, I mean, four is like one of my favorites of this series, just because I feel like there's. I always felt there was something a little flat about three, even though the puzzles are designed really brilliantly. Except well, for Adana, I cannot stand Adana. It just I cannot stand Adana. I feel um, that formulaically, Mist Three hugged uh, the original Mist game, where you have a hub world and then you have you know, you know, four set ages yeah. to come. Visit and each of them kind of are linear in that sense, just like the original Mist game, where you well, go into an age, it, you kind of finish all the puzzles there, you go back out to the hub world, you go to the next one. In the same vein, um, Bioshock Two was very formulaically just the same thing as Bioshock again. I mean, there was some gameplay innovations, some changes, whatever, but it was still a fun outing. And so that's the same thing I would say for you know Mist Three. Yes, the formula is is still kind of you know. Mist, and in the same way, you know, uh, Mist Five End of Ages is formulaically just another Mist, you know. But you know, is it fun? Is the is the the short and the long of it? Well, I mean, the the thing that was interesting about um, Four, and actually, the thing that's really interesting about Four is that Four starts out seeming like it's going to be, you know, sort of very formulaic, where you know you stay on Tamada the whole time. And then halfway through, it says, "Nope, we're going in a different direction." And then it turns out that. You know what you're doing is actually for something completely different, and I thought yeah. that was interesting. Is that they're trying to be a little bit more open-ended, and I, I thought that felt nice. I thought it was a really fun nod when there's there's a point in uh, Mist Four where you, you actually visit the part of Tamana where you were in Mist Three. Yeah, I was so I was like, wait a minute, oh my god, this is so cool. I was yeah. so happy about that. Yeah, that's that's one and of those and, things and, that that we have a lot of trouble with in succeeding games. Like when I hit Mass Effect Two, and we're on the Mass Effect, uh, the original. I forget the name of the ship, Normandy, on the original Normandy, and it's and it's like you know, it's like I never left. The game just continued. The world's been here waiting for me all this time, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of cool because it, it's that connection. Even if the same studio develops the game, as an example, Fear One and Fear Two, they, the feel between the two is night and day different. So, I mean, yeah. and they uh, they uh, um, what was what was really nice to that. I love when um, when you use the imager. I forget what it is. Uh, the the shell thing. The in that area, you get you get the uh, FMVs from Mist Three, which you know I was like, nice touch, guys. <laughs> yeah. So moving on, we have the uh, the future of PC gaming as predicted by Ken Levine mm-hmm. or Levine Levine Ken Levine. Yeah. So he's he thinks that uh, PC gaming isn't going away ever. Well, uh, first of all, why don't you tell us who Ken Levine is? 
What? Mm-hmm. You don't know? Well, <laughs> I may know, but our <laughs> listeners out there in audio land may if, not know. If you know what Bioshock is, then in keeping with that theme, you know who Levine is. He's uh, the creative force behind Bioshock and uh, behind the upcoming Bioshock Infinite. So, is it Infinite or Infinity? It's Infinite. infinite. Okay. It's a... Uh, I guess it would kind of make more sense to be Infinity, but I don't know. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing that it's set in a time in history when we really just had bolt-action rifles, you know, whereas Bioshock, we had Tommy guns and what have you. Yeah. It, it seems to me like um, the idea with Bioshock Infinite, I mean, as much as people try to convince me otherwise, and this is kind of, I'm sort of ranting here, but I seem to get the sense that it's like a game that is same concept but different universe, yeah. sort of. That's yeah. why it's called Bioshock, yeah. But in any case, um, so he's he talks about how, you know, there's consoles and PCs, and because, you know, the consoles kind of have this... Uh, me too thing. I'm sure you've noticed, like the uh, <laughs> the Connect, the the PlayStation Move God. being being answers to the Wii. How many years later? I think in both cases, I think they they both have interesting takes on the same formula. But this has happened everywhere. You know, um, no one had done the aim down the sight shooting perspective until Infinity War did it in Call of Duty, and then now everyone pretty much does it. You know, so these these things have ways of uh, showing up everywhere in the industry. His, pure, his theory is that a lot of the innovation is going to continue to happen on PCs, and development always happens on PCs anyway. So, I don't know, I, I've seen behind-the-scenes videos of companies like uh, uh, Naughty Dog, who does Uncharted, and Uncharted 2, and soon Uncharted 3, where you, you see their office, and they've got these PlayStation controllers plugged into PCs, not into PlayStations, <laughs> you know, so... You know, the creation happens on these type of things, and so it stands to reason that gaming also would be a natural thing here. Well, uh, the one thing point that I think he... The pertinent point that Ken Levine makes is that because everything is being developed on a PC in the first place, and then later it's being translated into something that's playable on a PlayStation 3 or an Xbox 360, there's a lot more middlemen involved in the process of making a console game, and that can kind of halt production of things and get, you know, prevent things from getting done. Whereas on the PC, you know, you developed it for a PC and pretty much the same product that they're, you know, the testers and the people developing the game are playing is what's going to go in the box or, in this case, on the Steam or something. You know, and, <laughs> and there's not a lot of change in how it plays. Plus, uh, yeah. patches have always been really easy to kind of implement which is interesting it seems like everything everything that goes online suddenly needs patches you know right but Microsoft all the patches have to be kind of run through Microsoft they have to okay that every patch that's made which is part of the problems that Valve has been having with uh, their version of Team Fortress 2 on the Xbox 360s to the point where they've pretty much given up on supporting mm-hmm. that Oh, that version because Microsoft. It, it, it's, a, it's a completely different version of the game than what's currently on uh, Steam yeah. right now because they just they hated getting Microsoft's approval for every single patch they do, and they do lots of patches for a game like Team Fortress 2 or Left 4 Dead 2. Well, another like thing that, that he points out is some of the strongest developers for consoles were PC developers first, but they, the thing I wonder is how long is that going to last? And, you know... What we always notice is that when consoles come out, there's this like this this small leap ahead or, or, or small leap to parity where the graphics of the consoles look much better than PC, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you run your graphics, of course. But gradually, the console slips back, and the PCs 
get these ports of these games. But the problem is we've reached a point where most of the games I'm looking forward to are available also on consoles. But my theory is if it's on PC, that's where I'm getting it. Because if it's a shooter, I need the mouse. You have this cycle. It seems to have all sort of started with the Wii, but you know, I'm sure there have been others, other examples through gaming history of where, you know, um, and yes, I'm going to use the word gimmick because I can't really find another way of describing it. You know, where one um, game developer, you know, or studio, whatever, um, you know, comes up with this gimmick and says, oh, look, we're going to have this new motion control feature that we're going to have inside our, uh, you know, inside our console now. And then what I dislike is how, you know, both Microsoft and Sony were sort of very took a. Oh uh, well, we don't need that. You know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna stick to our guns, and then five years later, proceed to try to imitate them. You know, at which point Nintendo was already moved on. They're going with 3D. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, my my main reason that I always stick with the PC is because of uh, things like mods. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the best games of the PC um, last year, and still now because of all the DLC is Borderlands. Yeah. And Borderlands uh, doesn't have an in-game configuration for V-Sync, but it's in the INI, so I can actually change it. But if you're like that on the console, you're stuck because you don't, they don't give you access to the INI in the console. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. If, yeah. And sometimes like there's games that I get that I'm having a good time, but I feel like the game's mechanic is holding me back, and so I can just cheat. I'm, I'm available to do that on the PC. And I don't mean like multiplayer games like Modern Warfare 2. I mean like single-player games. Like um, I'm in, I've been playing Just Cause 2 again on the PC, and I figured out how to get it to run smoothly. But since I've already done the whole game on the console, I did it the legitimate way. I just feel like having fun and just throwing back. So I, I throw on a, a trainer, and I can't die. And then I just go to town mowing down everybody. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Uh, there was a, a big kind of a debacle over... Uh when Fallout 3 came out on the PC because it was a game for a Windows Live game, which means it still had linked with your Xbox achievements. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you could just use the command console to get, unlock all the achievements in the PC ah. version of the game. And it was, it kind of started this this big fuss with the community where people were really upset and everything. But <laughs> Bethesda's attitude towards the whole thing was like, yeah, there's lots of things you can do with that command console. <laughs> they, they were still kind of approaching it with like a, a PC mindset. Yeah. Well, I, I agree like, with that, though. That's what command consoles are for. Yeah, that's, like, that's, what, that's why you get it on PC. And if you don't like it, you know, get it on console and stop complaining. So, <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing I, um, on a small aside that I, I always have problems with with people on multiplayer games is people complaining about the way other people play. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's twofold. First off, you get the people who, you know, I'm so awesome, you suck, and they keep saying it again and again, and you suck, or, and, you know, you are pwned, or whatever. Like, I don't have the kind of time that you put into this game. I just don't. I have other things in my life. So the gaming is something I do, like, people would watch TV. I just play games for relaxation and entertainment. And this is not a lifestyle. This is not the only game I play. So if I'm not the most awesome at it, well, but then you get these people who's like, you know, news, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it that way? It's like, it's legal. They're not cheating. I have no complaints. You know, so if you're in a match where you're unhappy and people aren't doing it the way you want, leave the match for another one that might suit you better. You know, just like we when we were playing Black Ops, there was a server uh, where the guy says you have to always walk crouched and you can only run if you're under fire. So he wanted to be kind of a, uh, a strategic kind of shooter. And that's fine, but I didn't like that, so I left that server. You know, I didn't make a fuss, I didn't complain, I didn't use profanity. I just okay, your goals and my goals don't match. I'm going somewhere else. So that's just one of those things that you. Just, it's kind of fun how people think that 
if you don't do it the right way, which is my way, because my way is the right way, of course, then you're not doing it. And why does it matter like that? Why, why can't it just be you do it the way you do it, where you do it, and everyone else who wants to do it, whatever they want to do it, they can do it where they, they do it without any issues. Well, at the same time, you don't want somebody to clearly be cheating. I was playing a, a Battlefield Bad Company 2 online, and there was this guy who was picking everybody off with this pistol from across the map through, you know, you know, ten different walls. So it was very obvious that and since every shot he was making was a headshot, even though there, it would be impossible for him to be making these shots, that he was he was oh, well, using a cheating mod. I've been playing Modern Warfare 2 for a long time, and, uh, you know, I, I told my friend Brent about it. I'm like, sometimes I, I, I spend so much time diagnosing the cheating. He's like, it's, it's Call of Duty. Call of Duty and cheating go together like peanut butter and jelly. He's like, it's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. like, there was, and it's kind of funny because you'll see the kill cam, and you watch them, like, in the, in the kill cam space of time, when you die, you see four other people die. <laughs> With perfect headshots, you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just one of the uh, reasons, uh, one of the things, things interesting about PC is, you know, that um, no matter uh, what kind of weird sort of gimmick renovations that consoles will try, PC will always be a constant. And I feel like a lot of the in- innovation in like gameplay, you know, at least in trying to pander to a market more naturally, trying to make gameplay is going to mostly happen in PCs, and then it'll sort of stem outwards from there. That's mostly what you know my experience uh, that I've seen. Uh, in that. Also, when you have a PC, if you if you got a properly built system, you can play games from way back when. You, know, you oh, can yeah. have a DOS box. You can uh, uh, the server, which still works to this day, was actually made for the days of Windows ninety eight. Let's let's uh, move on to our next point, which is actually semi-related, but kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, which is this accusation that Valve and Steam are killing the PC gaming market. <gasps> See, <laughs> right there, I just want to say they are, they are, in my opinion, revitalizing it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, because um, as so much so, and Jeff has tried to refute me, but I, I'm still seeing it happen. It looks like the sales that. Valve keeps having that keeps people keep opening Steam every day to see if another sale is on mm-hmm. are being replicated in games from Windows Live and the Xbox console in the, the the Sony PlayStation Store. It's it's being they're they're seeing that this is a positive movement. So it, it may actually be the same kind of thing like shooters were were born on the PC and trickled down the consoles. These sales are born on the PC and trickling down the consoles. So like yeah. as as a gaming industry as a whole, we are having a positive effect on them. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just want to point out, I mean, um, let's talk about piracy a bit. I think uh, three of the things that, you know, are most affected by piracy are usually uh, you know, the big three are music, uh, movies, and games that, you know, are the things that people usually pirate. Um, and Music and movie pirating became a big issue, and most people seem to be in agreement now that uh, iTunes basically um, sort of solved that problem a bit by, you know, really what they did is making it accessible. You know, it's yeah, really and affordable. It's like, yeah, accessible. A, and, a and, dollar and a song is not a reasonable yeah. price for anyone to ask. In fact, I remember reading about three or four years ago that there was a lot of people, uh, recording studios were pressuring uh uh, Apple to raise the prices of the song. Well, unfortunately, they have. Oh, so, yeah, a little bit, but I mean, they've held off for doing that for a long time. But, but on the flip side, the, the, the higher they price, they want them to replace, you know, hike it up to two, you know, two dollars or more, you know, for songs. But they said no. See, if you do that, 
you're just going to have people stealing your songs again. But I like the volume discount idea where, you know, if you want the whole album, you know, there's 27 tracks, you only pay $10, and you're getting a steal on, on the tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, which in which case, what they were trying to do is recoup the cost of, like, say, like, say there's an album with, like, one or two singles on there. They wanted you to pay for the singles enough money that made, like, the people purchasing the album not be a loss. And I don't, I don't like that idea because it's, gouging is not a good idea in my opinion. But uh, the, the, on that place, I think that the uh, the video is still not quite coming into its own because of people who have digital videos on their computers in iTunes. Are, the only way they can get to their TVs with an Apple TV, and so it's kind of lock in and expensive. You can't use a Roku box, even though it's cheaper and could could do it if the the content wasn't protected. But then you can maybe get the stuff from iTunes, but then you've got the Zoom store. And it's like nobody – everyone wants to lock you into their environment. And I understand the reason why, but you know it's not going to progress with, with that perspective. But with the, with the audio, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. With the video, I think we're still kind of coming into our own. But, I mean, the, the point that I'm making is, you know, what you do is it, it's not so much that people – as it turns out, that people don't want to pay. I mean, that's part of it. But if you make it accessible enough, if you make it accessible and you make, you know, really not too much out of, you know, somebody's reach, um, then, it you know, you're going to solve a bunch of problems. And that's what Steam, I think, does really well by having – making it super easy. You know, there's no disk or anything. You just sort of – as long as you have a decent enough connection, you just – do your download, install it, you know, it takes like mm-hmm. all of five seconds to make a game purchase. And these, you know, sales that they have, like every day, there's yeah. always something that's being discounted. And, well, I have you know, a friend who's a, a big PC gamer um, that's been like, he had a PlayStation 3 for a while. I guess he beat the snot of it and stopped working, <laughs> which is fun. But uh, he now he's back to PC gaming. I'm, I'm trying to tell him, like, there is no better place to get games than Steam. And he's like, but I have to have the program open every time I go in there. I'm like, dude, your computer is never not online. So like if if you're if you're never offline, having Steam open is not a problem, and you have a quad core processor, so Steam is not going to pull resources that are essential for the game. So it's like some people do still have the mental block with like they have to have a disc. Bert, one of the people on our staff, is uh, he doesn't want a digital only purchase. He wants an actual disc. He wants a physical copy. Well, because there's the sense that you're only renting something from a, you know. A vendor, you know, it, the feeling that you don't have anything physical, like you don't have the control over your well, own product. And, and EA you know, screwed that up too because they put an activation limits on things, not trusting in, in Valve's DRM. However, on the flip side, I don't think they did that with Mass Effect too. So they're learning. Yeah. So but, there's a number of brick and mortar stores that kind of started a big kerfuffle over uh, the fact that they're selling pro- Steam games or box games that uh, require Steam and. And once people learn about Steve, that they, they forget about the store. It's it's so stupid that they, they reach a point where they think that we open this door to this other venue and there's no way to pull you back. It's like, well, obviously you need to work on your sales model then, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm still waiting for GameStop to make their own version of Steam or you know some of these other They do have companies. digital downloads, I believe, digital purchases. They do, but it's really shoddy and they don't offer the discounts that Steam does. Like I said, if you can get a game for 75% or 50% yeah. off, and, you know, just the, by keeping The only your competitor eye open. to Steam in my opinion is Good Old Games. It's the only one. Yeah, they do a pretty good job, but they don't have a, really the selection that Well, of course it's Good Old Games, so it's the old games. There's, there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first off, there's no DRM. Which and Steam, it's another fine source to collect uh, Cyan games. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Steam has DRM, that, which means the client has to be open. 
But to me, that's not a problem because the client adds a lot to the the experience. You have the overlay. Mm-hmm. You want to chat while you're in game. Hey, I need to find out how to do this. So I'll just bring up mm-hmm. the browser in game and look for it without having to actually tab out of the game. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Love that. Love but that. Uh, so to me, I think Steam brings so much more to the table, in, including the fact that you don't need a disc in the drive to play the game. Yeah. Yeah. So, but. Uh, the problem I have with like things like Direct to Drive, um, and I'm not sure if uh, GameStop does this, but I know that uh, the EA Game Store Online does this. There's only two activations on the game you buy. So if you're any kind of a PC gamer worth your salt, you know that reinstalling your PC is part of your lifestyle. It happens at least once a year. And <laughs> so that means that when you buy a game, you've got two years and then it's gone. You can't activate it a third time. I can just back up the Steam folder, restore the Steam folder, reinstall DirectX, all the stuff you have to do at the beginning of the running of the game, and I'm back in business. If, if uh, Steam is killing the base PC retail gaming market, I say so be it. I can't imagine buying a music CD these days. I think similarly, there's going to come a point where we can't imagine buying games on disc. Well, if one thing I will admit, Steam certainly does have a, a really strong grip on that market. They don't really have any competitors that are of any threat to them at this point. Well, they have a couple that are trying. Impulse and Games yeah, Room was live. No. Uh, even well, Google is trying to get in on that. But why should they? I mean, Steam did it right. You know, they did it first and they did it right, so well, yeah, they should get mm-hmm. Well, they didn't do it right immediately, first off. Uh, the, the Steam has some teething pains. Everyone does. But, uh, you know, with uh, Games Room was live trying to compete, they're just not managing it. So, uh, well, And but, Microsoft should know what they're doing. They've got Xbox Live. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'd love to um, see a sale that's more than you know ten percent off on something. Um, <laughs> it's Microsoft. Yeah, I, I love the whole Microsoft volume discount. If you buy more than one copy of Windows or whatever, you get ten percent off of the following one. When Windows costs two hundred dollars, <laughs> it really doesn't make a big difference. <laughs> like, wow, I get to save ten dollars. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh boy, enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah the volume discount on Windows is uh, TechNet. But in any case. Um, anyway, so speaking of uh, you know iTunes, uh, guess what, guys? Um, hmm. Cyan has finished their uh, version of iRiven for the iPod Touch and the iPhone, and I believe also the iPad, and they've submitted it to Apple for approval. Wouldn't it be funny if Apple rejected it? <laughs> yeah. Too big, did not read. <laughs> You know, I can't imagine. Like, first off, like how how would they approve it? I mean, someone someone would have to play through it, right? So we're we're essentially waiting for that poor Apple staffer to finish the game. (laughs) Hopefully, somebody's already. Someone send him a walkthrough quick. (laughs) I'm just I'm just shocked. I mean, I can see Mist working on the iPhone, but like Riven is like, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing for even you know. Even with compression, that's going to be a huge app. You know, I, I don't even care if it's compressed. It's 640 by 480, so it's, it'll fit on the screen fine. My, my problem is mm. uh, I'm just I'm sick of, like, bending over backwards to try to get Riven running it and failing miserably. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get it for the iPhone and be happy they can play it on a system that is just going to run it properly. That's my big deal. Because PC, you just can't... It's, we've, I thought we've, it was working okay with Windows 7. We, we passed the point where you want to scale your screen down to 640 by 480. I don't know how long ago. Like, I can't do it anymore. It just if I if I have some like if my chat program is open but in the system tray and I come back and the, the window is in the middle and it's tiny, no, well, when, I can't when, have when it. I when I run it in XP, which by the way it does run in XP, it just doesn't run very well. Um, it full screens it. 
which is um, interesting because people say that in Windows 7 or whatever, it uh, you know it gives you this little tiny window, but no, it I'm, I get full screen. I don't. Well, I don't know. We were talking about the Steam version, yeah. Uh, I've done uh, good old games and Steam. They both have both have similar issues with me, which I want to play it, but I just I can't sit through it. The the one in Windows Seven, kept, Jeff says his ran fine, but mine was crashing randomly. Not crashing, it was lock up. I have to close the application. And it's not. Yeah, I, I got. I didn't have any issues except for the fact that, like with well, the uh, GOG version, there are missing animations for no apparent reason, and I, I don't understand that. I didn't have any missing animations in GOG. I still, I still think that's something specific to you, or your machine. I mean, because it was both. It was, it was both the uh, the GOG well, and. The... I, I blame the QuickTime, because and then, uh, and then also, I mean, as an example, iTunes lately. Um, I thought that when I reinstalled Windows, I would stop having problems. Oh. Uh, but iTunes. If I play a video and I pause it, and then I go back to iTunes, iTunes will not respond, and then I have to then I go bring up Task Manager. It says not responding, even though the program is clearly up and still it hasn't done what we call the gray screen of murder, where the screen actually turns gray and stops working. So then I have to I force it to close. And this is a clean install. I t- no other version of iTunes has been on here, so this is just the very latest version. And then I get to an Apple update, and there's a QuickTime update, and then now it seems to be working okay. See, I don't even bother with iTunes for that reason. I mean, I, I have a pretty decent computer, and I still just don't even want to try letting that run. See, here's the, the thing. experience I've had on other PCs. Getting getting down a little bit of a iTunes rat hole. Uh, mm. I use iTunes to organize a large amount of videos, subscribe to and maintain my podcast collection, and therefore I, I, can, I can know where I'm, I left off. I can actually use iTunes with my iPhone to actually maintain some level of progress. In addition, I also have a separation of videos to TV shows. Nothing else I know can handle that. Yeah, I mean, but that works on the back, okay? I mean, because it more or less just sort of is sort of secondary to the actual OS itself. But on Windows, it just it's just it's like trying to push a donkey, and it's just sort of sitting there going, "Wow, I'm just not moving," you know. At least that's my experience with it. It just does not want to run. Yeah, my my beef with iTunes is pretty much the same as. Uh Genesis. I use mine for the same reasons, uh, just to organize my massive music collection and separate my movies and my TV shows. But that it is by far the beefiest non-gaming program I've ever run on any system ever. I don't know why that thing is as big as it is and why the install is you know hundreds of megabytes. This doesn't make any sense for something that's you know essentially a music player. I can tell you why right away. iTunes right. is not a native Windows program iTunes runs very well in Mac. But even on the Mac, when you when you fire up iTunes, there's there's a one, two, three, four before it actually is up. So it isn't like you know you click and boom, here's iTunes. So it's still a kind of chunky butt on, on the Mac. And the Windows version, as far as I know, is not actually a native Windows spin. So that's where the problem comes from. As an example, the uh, the Zune software is essentially most of the functionality that iTunes has, and that program launches like a champ. But <laughs> for the life of me, I can't make that program work for me. There's this, just this one – I'm the king of having specific things that cause me to stick with certain things, and iTunes has this feature that I need. Um, I don't trust iTunes to organize my library. I never will. I will never want it to put stuff in folders and group it into the places it wants to. I will never, ever use that because I don't – I don't ha- I cannot get with this whole theory of just drop it all in one place and use search. Never going to do that. 
because you know I can't trust that the search is going to find everything, and more often than not, I'm, I'm right. It's not actually kept finding something I'm looking for for whatever reason. So, in any case, um, on the left hand side of iTunes, there's this, the playlist group, this area, and I what I do is I have my music already organized into folders by genre and or album. Okay, so okay. I actually just drag the folder I need over there to the playlist, drop it. It creates a playlist, same name as the folder, with the contents of the folder in the playlist. That way, if you get a bunch of junk, which is not a problem as much anymore as it was before, when you go into iTunes, anything you ever play that ever pops up in iTunes is now immutably added to your library. But uh, whenever I used to want to just do a purge of the library, just delete all the playlists, delete all the music in the library, and gradually, one by one, put it all back. And then I have to do a lot of work, because what I do is I configure the, the main music listing to be exactly the way I want, and then whenever I drag all those things to the playlist, the playlists are formatted the same way. So, so it seems like a long workaround, but these people who have like, you know, 30,000 songs in there and they have no way of like easily getting to it without using search, to me that seems, it seems like an extra step you don't need to have to, have to search for what you want. What if you want, want a compilation of something? Say so you want game soundtracks, whatever. So I don't know. That's, that's me. And I, I'm comfortable with that being me being that kind of nerd because I don't know anything else that gives me that kind of flexibility. Now, what I really want, if, if I could, if I could ask for one feature that all the companies would do, it would be just this one thing. If you ever synced pictures to an iPod or an iPod touch using iTunes, it takes the folders that are in your pictures folder and creates playlists for each of those folders automatically. Why the hell can't the audio part of it do that? It's the same. I have the same problem with the. Um, what is the Mac iPicture application? Is it iPhoto? iPhoto? I think it's iPhoto. Yeah. yeah, same problem there. You know, it's why is iTunes able to sync these folders in exactly the format I want without me having to do anything extra? You get the music stuff can't do that. I think it's because we've had too many years of like uh, Microsoft and and Apple already organizing the folders the way they want for so long that you know it just wouldn't work that way. So anyway, where are we at? Um, let's, move, let's move on. Um, our next bullet point that we have listed here for discussion today is um, the new open source Connect drivers that were released. Okay, here's here's a little bit of story. If you haven't, if you're not aware, yeah. the Connect was hacked to work on the PC, and you know. Oh, but it worked. It goes even further back than that, doesn't it, Janathus? Well, the, the there, was diff- the, there was the contest where uh, somebody said, like, I will pay, like, what was it, like a thousand, ten thousand, something. Dollars to the first person who can, you know, successfully hack the connect, right? Oh, I don't know. I didn't hear about that. <laughs> I, I I can't remember the story exactly, but it's really funny because basically, people were competing for like a week or two to figure out who could hack it first, and then somebody did, and then I guess they shared all their information, and now we've got See, these open source connect drivers. That there was a lot of uh, uh, control schemes over the years for PCs that were kind of crazy and off the wall and stuff, and you know, some games might integrate integrate them, some might not. I've been a lot of fads. Well, I would count PhysX among them, uh, but no, in any case. Uh, but uh, the fact that there's open source Connect drivers and now you know you can legitimately buy the Connect package and plug it into your PC is actually kind of cool. But then again, I think you know I'm sitting here in a chair in front of my monitor. The Connect is really not good for my lifestyle of PC usage. Yeah, people jokingly call it furniture mover the game. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a surprising number of Kinect games already traded into GameStops and whatnot. I, 
for being as new as it is, I've seen a bunch of Connectimals and Connect Adventures, and I think it's disappointing people. But it's the strongest selling of the new two between it and Sony. It's selling much better than Sony One is. I thought it was going to do well. I thought it would sell like maybe a million, you know, this holiday season. Think, but it's already passed what four million. Uh, so long as they they keep it, you know, from trying to be a replacement for the controller for like the games that I would say the hardcore gamers tend to play and accept that the, the game market is actually segmented into, you know, people who play Xbox aren't all, not all playing Call of Duty, that same kind of thing. So long as they accept that reality and, and make the Kinect games Kinect specific, I don't think it'll be a big deal. Yeah, I, well, I, it's, a, it's a gimmick that they're using to make a lot of money this holiday season. And mm-hmm. it, it's another opportunity for Microsoft to really try on Sony. <laughs> Wait, what uh, the PlayStation Move is not doing as well. Yeah, the PlayStation Move, if it didn't have like the little ball at the top of the little thing, <laughs> that's 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 the only problem I have with it. Like, couldn't couldn't have been like a a vertical rectangle or something that it have to be a, a cute little ball. You know, one of the you know one of the bigger uh, issues I have with that is that I remember when the Wii first came out and. Uh, there was an interview with, I think, one of the Sony execs, and they said, you know, they basically compared the Wii, the Wii mode, you know, the system to, like, having a popsicle. And they said, gamers don't want to have, you know, uh, uh, no, lollipop is the term used. They said, you know, gamers don't want to have a lollipop. And yet, there they go, and they make something that looks like a freaking lollipop. And like, I'm sure, literally. I'm sure it has to do with, you know, the, the tracking on the camera or whatever, but either case... Still, though. <laughs> I, I still... I still the stick to the idea that just that move is sort of a casual thing that <clears throat> that the consoles these these two consoles didn't really need, mm-hmm. but of the two, the one that I find the more interesting is Connect. So, Connect well, uh, has potential that is you know quite obviously not being used yet. But I think but, the most interesting thing about this issue in general is the fact well, that one thing that Sony is doing is very very Apple-y lock in. Can you plug a Sony? Uh, six assets they come with the PlayStation 3 to a PC and use it? No. Can you plug an Xbox 360 controller into the PC and use it? Yes. Can you plug the Kinect into the PC and use it? Yes. So I think this is one of those cases where, you know, the Kinect not only has more potential, in my opinion, because of uh, how it opens things up to be controller-free, but also it is accessible to more than just this one restrictive platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even from a marketing perspective, if you went on Oprah and you showed uh, oh, the PlayStation Move to people, people would just say, well, we've already seen the Wii. The Wii does that. People won't get it. But you show the Kinect, you know, the fact that there's no controllers, that's a much more, you know, entertaining thing to kind of really impress parents who are going to buy, you know, their kids' stocking stuffers and whatnot. Yeah. So what's your mean- point, Morris? Yeah, the thing the thing I was going to say is I feel like we definitely I mean it, it's funny how history repeats itself cuz like <laughs> we saw this in a, like a very miniature version back when uh you know the Wii first came out and you know a lot of gamers were saying you know Nintendo is sort of abandoning us and they're sort of trying you know, they're doing this gimmicky crap and you know we're not really interested you know I wish they would actually take their user base seriously instead of just assuming that everybody's you know just you know buying every you know Alvin and the Chipmunks game that is coming off the shelf you know um and then it looked for a bit like you know um uh Sony and uh, Microsoft were going to sort of take that you know the the higher path on this one and then they just copied them and it's just guys did you did you pay attention when uh, Nintendo tried to do that. It didn't really work. <laughs> They're following the money train. Yeah, that's My, Nintendo has been doing very well you know, financially. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the the thing is you know money always talks. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that that is the issue, and that's actually what I remember. Nintendo had said this at E3. They're like, you know, yeah, people criticize us for you know not uh, you know you know being very successful with the gamers, but look at our numbers. They say otherwise, and I'm like, God damn it, you guys! But you know, the one thing that we really have noticed is that although the Wii has had unprecedented success with the consoles. The Wii games are showing that the consoles have a, a limited uh, appeal to gamers, and it appears lately that they've hit saturation. No, so. seriously. No, they hit saturation day one, my friend. The only good games for the Wii are the first are the <laughs> no, first no, no. Games. I mean saturation as in the sales have finally started to, to trend oh, downwards. Okay, fair. I'm, I'm just talking about, like, uh, shovelware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> on a on a flip note, that's kind of related to the Nintendo thing you're talking about. Uh, I love that Kotaku always has these photoshopped images of um, what's the guy behind Nintendo? I forget his name. Oh, Reggie fills something. No, 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 no. Uh, oh, Miyamoto. Yeah, Miyamoto. Oh. They have pictures of him smiling and holding various objects, and it's always like <laughs> it prints money. It prints money too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, moving forward here. Uh, did either of you watch this the Spike Video Game Awards? I did not watch it, but I followed it relatively closely. Uh, yeah, all I cared about is like there was these trailers that were being held back to come out for the Video Game Awards, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all the show's purposes. Yeah, uh, um, I I saw on Kotaku what the awards were, and it it, it seemed very fickle to me. Like like they almost yeah. just gave awards to say, yep, yeah, see, there was some awards there. It was called an award show, so they, we had to give some awards. And, you know, back to those trailers we released. You know, <laughs> no, like, no. Yeah. What, a lot, what a lot of people are saying is that they, they, it seems to be an award show in name only, where the focus really isn't on the awards, and that they, they really ought to cut the BS and sort of just keep it to, you know, what the point is, which is to make money and to hype games, and not actually for awards. What's, what, what's, what's interesting, actually, no, before I go into what's interesting, let's let's go down the list of no, no, I want to talk about Neil Patrick Harris first. Fine, okay. I love Neil Patrick Harris, <laughs> which is interesting because a lot of people are hyped. You know, oh, Neil Patrick Harris, you know, funny man, he's going to be there, you know, and yeah, everybody. Doogie Howser, yay. Doogie Howser, uh, Dr. Now, on the flip side, a lot of people like him, think he's cool and everything. Oh, yeah, but, no, he's wonderful. I love him. And, and I agree, and I agree. But but um, has it escaped everyone's attention that he's gay? Yeah. No, I knew about that. So everyone, everyone has seen past that, and, and which I find very encouraging. I find that really what encouraging. I, what I think is well, part of the part of the reason is that you know some people may know him from How I Met Your Mother, and if you know How I Met Your Mother, you know that it's ironic because he plays a total womanizer on that show. So <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, you have sort of that Neil Patrick Harrisian character where people don't you know even realize it because they say, oh you know he's you know this womanizer guy is a funny man you know so that could be part of that you know. Well, he, um, he didn't hit my radar until um, I mean first was the Doogie Howser, of course. Um, he was in that movie with uh, Whoopi Goldberg, which I can't remember the name, but uh, which I thought was good. And then years later, the, the only time he hit my radar was when he was on uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. <laughs> I knew <laughs> you were going to say that too. <laughs> that was when he hit my radar next. <laughs> waiting for it. He's going to say Harold and Kumar. <laughs> I mean, because he plays for people who don't understand what the what the reference is he plays this sort of uh idealized version of himself you know this actor named neil patrick harris and you know in, in this movie this idealized version of himself is this absolute jerk so <laughs> well he also did uh he did what i consider one of the second funniest old spice commercials oh you know, yes you know behind the obvious one yes i used, you know. I used to play I used a, doctor to a doctor pretend <laughs> i do that now. Okay, so uh, but, so but he, his he, presence wasn't really uh, felt in. Yeah, he, he wasn't really doing. He was sort of just there to talk. He wasn't really he, that interesting. Yeah. He was yeah. reading cards. 
Yeah, I wonder if, if they had him around because he he has a really good presence for like the the tongue in cheek uh, straight man commercial routine that he does. You know the things where where he says things in a straight man way that that could be considered you know passable, except then you realize that things are not actually something you should be saying in that case. Like obviously they have me getting off an airplane here and they can look like I live a luxuriously rich lifestyle. And you know so he just rattles that off and and it's it's you know subtly dry humor. But uh, so you'd expect that when he's in VGAs, he'd be doing a lot of that. And I guess I heard that he didn't so much, which is a shame. But on to the games. So uh, one of the first things, and I know, Janathus, you are pumped about this, Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception. I, I, I am and I'm not, because I, I just <laughs> I feel like Uncharted 2 was, was so good that it's, it's, it's going to be hard for them to really hit that mark again or go higher. And and it looks like they're putting him in the desert, which I which has the potential to be boring environments. I hope they do it right, but we'll see. You know, I, I've seen many fan franchises in the gaming world falter after the second one. It's for in the movie theaters too, so it's it's not unprecedented that they might not nail it on the third try. But I hope so. Right. And then, of course, some of the other uh, most talked about recently. There's been a lot of buzz. Is the announce of Elder Scrolls Five? Oh, I was finally. I've been talking at the bit for news on this thing. Terrible. Finally, they're doing away with that terrible engine that they based Elder Scrolls 4 and uh, Fallout 3 around. Because, man, man, I mean, because that engine, very good at environments, but you go up to people's faces and, dear God. Ugh, well, you know, creeps. the one thing about Elder Scrolls 4, though, was that the, the world, it, you could crank it up to, to, you know, before Crisis came out, Elder Scrolls 4 was the, the poster mark for you know, hurts your PC in the worst way, you know, because you, you cranked it up and your PC went, no, it would whimper, you know, so. Let's hope they don't introduce, like, a real major star to play a pivotal character and then kill him off almost immediately like they did in the <laughs> other two games. Like, I am Patrick Stewart. You are, must follow this quest line. Blarg, I am dead. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> really? Why was the spoiler alert? <laughs> oh, it happens in the first five minutes of the game. I don't spoiling yeah. anything. Yeah. He you also played Elder Scrolls Four at this point. Launch yes. title for Xbox 360. <laughs> yeah, he also it came says out like the, a month after. In the opening narration, he says he's going to die. So, <laughs> yeah, I think actually what the and, problem was was not so much the faces as the eyes. It's one of the things that Valve learned with um, with Alex and Half Life Two, that when people look at you, their eyes converge on you, and you're kind of used to that. And so when you see people where their eyes are both staring straight away from you, it looks like they're looking off into the distance instead of looking at you. I think that's part of where these facial things are a problem. And it's not just you know Elder Scrolls that had the issue, but I did like that they, you know they had a lot of different environments. But of course, with the massiveness of the world of Oblivion. The musical cues and stuff kind of repeat. I remember when I heard the soundtrack for the first time that that piece, um, "The Wings of Chimera," if that's the way you pronounce it. I was thinking like, I can't wait to see wherever this place is. And then like they kind of just play it sporadically throughout the world. <laughs> anyway, like, and it, yeah, you could be in the middle of a fight and then you jump over a fence and you're someone's farm and they're playing this epic music and you're like, what? This is not really <laughs> relevant. It's almost like uh, like when they play the music in the. Uh, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they're, they're, it's epic and they're pretending to be riding horses, but there's no horses. It's almost kind of yeah. like that. So, yeah. Um, so, so I'm, I, I'm glad I, there's well, news, but there was A, no gameplay show for a game that's supposed to be out in less than a year. 
And B, I really want some feel for what this game is, aside from the knowledge that apparently dragons are involved. Yeah. Well. Um, and then one of the other most talked about games uh, that has had a lot of buzz is Mass Effect Three. Oh, I wanted you to save that for last, but okay. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, because I mean, these are, I mean, the three that I've mentioned, I think, are the three most, uh, the three games that were announced that I think there's the most buzz about. So that's why I think I put them yeah. first, and then. Um, there was then, there was buzz that Mass Effect Three was going to be an unrelated game to the Mass Effect series, and we were going to have to wait longer for Mass Effect 3, and I was like, oh, please tell me they planted that, because I really don't want to wait. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now there's talk about being a significant multiplayer uh, portion of Mass Effect 3. Yeah, EA's really, really um, pushing multiplayer now. I don't well, know if you've been following it. They have multiplayer in all of their games, whether it belongs there or not. Yeah, is that, that's what they're talking about. Like, like two of the, the uh, franchises that they didn't think really hit their stride was like uh, Mirror's Edge and, and a couple others. And they, they made it sound like, you know, the reason it didn't was because of the lack of multiplayer. I'm like, no, I think the reason Mirror's Edge didn't hit its stride is because it's too short. You know, it's a really fun game. I really enjoy it. But it just, if you, you can play through it in like three hours. It's really yes, but learning. Por- learning Portal is also really short. And that caught on quick. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that, you're right, Portal Jeff. was sold in a compilation with a ton of other valuable yeah, products. Yeah, where like, I think the total, if you broke it down, you paid like $5 for Portal. Yeah, but uh, yeah, with Mirror, with Mirror's Edge, yeah, I see a lot of people who put, who put videos on YouTube who don't know how to play it right, and mm-hmm. so a part of the fun is like learning how to smooth out all the kinks in the game, and, I, and that's what I, yeah. I got a lot of replay through. But EA says like the pretty much in a nutshell, the problem was that they didn't have multiplayer. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah, that course. wasn't it. That wasn't. This is this is this is why you don't trust your uh, intellectual property with EA. Yeah, <laughs> just putting it out there. Yeah, um, no. But the interesting thing about um. Uh, just about, uh, um, uh, sorry, Mass Effect mm-hmm. is that, um, actually, uh, Janathus, uh, got me Mass Effect for Christmas. So what I'm going to do, it's interesting. When I went home for break, uh, last year, I was playing Kotor, uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which was the, actually the first sci-fi game that Bioware worked on. And now I'm playing their other, uh, sci-fi game. Uh, this uh, year, so it's interesting how things repeat themselves. Well, I have this th- this theory on you know Mass Effect. Mass Effect came out of Bioware's desire to do with Knights of the Republic what they couldn't do with a licensed property. Mm-hmm. I think that they they tailor it's it's one of the things that I still have a, a theory about like games and licensing. Um, as an example, um, the uh, Watchmen game that's actually listed here on the Video Games Life site, The End Is Nigh. It might even be a decent game, but nobody cares because it's licensed from a movie, and almost all movie tie-in games are freaking terrible. Indeed. So we're we're kind of 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 the opinion that you know licensed tie-ins have restrictions that that games designed to be games don't have, and I think that's what Mass Effect really sings is it 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 allows them to do what they wanted to do in a game world with a sci-fi setting. And I really have to say they they hit what I consider the best of both worlds. You've got you have the the questing of Nice Little Republic. You have you know semi force powers in biotics and what have you. Uh, you have a little a, a living space moving through space, sort of like Star Trek. So I think it's like it's got all the bits and pieces to make a really successful sci fi game. Yeah. And so, in my opinion, uh, Mass Effect Two, in in the way of a lot of sequels like uh, Assassin's Creed Two, Bioshock Two. Almost every sequel I played in the last couple of years has been has made it so like I can't stand playing the first game because the gameplay is so much stepped up in the second game. 
which kind of reminds me of something else I wanted to kind of go on a quick tangent is uh, Dragon Age 2. Mm-hmm. Dra- Dragon Age 2 is going to be to Dragon Age 1 what Mass Effect 2 was to Mass Effect 1, where they're pretty much changing the kind of the gameplay mechanic of how it works and just kind of streamlining the game in such a way that if they do what they did to Mass Effect with Mass Effect 2 to the Dragon Age franchise, it's going to be a magnificent game. Yeah, and Bioware is, is if nothing else, a very strong development house. They, oh, they, yes. they put out solid games. And the one the one downside, unfortunately, I have to warn you about, Mars is that Mass Effect 1 was ported by someone not Bioware. So uh, ah. you're going to have a little bit of, of chunky butt in the performance, and which, which, will, which will be a, a little... Jarring because then you'll get Mass Effect Two and it'll run so much better and look yeah, better I too. Didn't pay money for it. <laughs> I didn't pay money for it. So yeah. So, but the um, the one thing that's going to be interesting to see is I, I I guess there's a way to get Shepard killed off in Mass Effect Two, and I've never wanted him to die, so I've never explored that possibility. Um, but there's decisions you make in Mass Effect One which have spots in Mass Effect Two where they show up where you have made changes in the world and the people you encounter. And so Bioware is saying there's like 150 some odd different choices that will will ultimately end up in Mass Effect 3. And so I can't wait to see how that plays out. So I have a friend who I, I bought uh, Mass Effect 2 for who had Mass Effect 1 and he keeps replaying them to like rejigger all his decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so. Which is really kind of funny because they uh, they just they're coming out with a PlayStation Three version of Mass Effect Two, but they're now porting uh, Mass Effect One. Yeah, but did you hear how they're solving that? No, I did not. They're giving you a little action comic to like walk through, and you make the decisions in the comic, hmm, and then, that, then you'll have made the decisions for Mass Effect Two. I'm that almost like like a interesting way to handle that. I'm I'm like, can I have that for the PC so I can stop playing Mass Effect One? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Man, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to downplay Mass Effect One. It, in 2007, Mass Effect One was kick ass. It was awesome. But after you play Mass Effect Two, you'd be like, Mass Effect what? Two? Yeah. Is that what you talk about? Because that's yeah, all I want to hear. I wonder if I'm going to feel that same way about Dragon Age One when Dragon Age Two comes out. So, oh, the other game on this list that I was kind of a little excited about is, and I know that uh, Janathus wasn't because we were discussing it earlier, was uh, the Forza Motorsports 4. Uh, mm-hmm. The Forza franchise has been kind of Microsoft's direct competitor to the Gran Turismo franchise that they have on the Sony systems. Gran Turismo 5 just came out, but I thought the and funny it thing about... amazing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think the funny thing about Gran Turismo and Forza is that Forza 1 came out after Gran Turismo 4, and it has since come out with three incarnations of that between the time that Gran Turismo 4 and Gran Turismo 5 have come out. Oh. <laughs> so you said that earlier, and I was kind of playing WoW, and I didn't get that point. Oh. I was like, I so. like just said something, and it sounded important, but I'm busy... Collecting chests, <laughs> but I, I've I've always liked the Forza series better than the Gran Turismo series, which I used to play those. But the Forza always felt like a little more uh, forgiving in how it handled some of the decisions. Uh, Forza Three, for example, has a rewind feature where, like, if you make one big mistake in a race, you know, rather than just kind of crash and lose the race and have to restart it and go over again, you can actually rewind time a little bit and kind of go back and make sure you don't make that same mistake again. So it just kind of 
I mean, you're just going to redo that race again anyway and not make the same mistake. So it just it's kind of really forgiving to you that by saving you all that time of having to jump through all the hoops to get to that spot again. Well, there is one more game on the list that I think is worth mentioning. is uh, the Batman Arkham City. Ah, yes. I finally got around to playing uh, Arkham Asylum, the first game. It's really good, That's isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. This is how a Batman game should be. Well, it's 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 a lot of... I mean, there's, there's a lot of should-be's statements. Like, this is the way a platformer should play. It, sh- it shouldn't have, like, all these obscure things you have to find that are impossible to find. It should be enjoyable and still fun. And so, like, there is a collection element, but the collection element isn't, like, you know, 10 billion things. It's, it's just, like, I think it's a... a it's, short is only 100 or something well, but what they, i like about but they're it easy is, to do and fun to find the, the combat element is is easy but still fun you know right you feel like you're in control but you're slightly challenged like the joker's minions and stuff you know you outmatch them you're in control of the situation because you're the bad man yeah I, I had a very similar experience playing the brand new uh pac-man uh championship edition dx on the xbox 360 i think it's a uh, exclusive to that platform mm-hmm. but they changed the way the rules of that game work where there's these sleeping ghosts on the grid and as you pass them they kind of follow you directly so eventually you can get this big chain of ghosts right behind you this huge train of like you know 70 plus ghosts following after you, you grab a pillar pellet and you just eat all of them up in a row and it's it's almost therapeutic how it yeah, that's, feels that's one of those All things where you they give you something where you can achieve it and you can achieve it you know and then it beat its face in the ground it's like uh, right. in, in my you opinion don't feel like you losing the game because you get caught in a corner you feel like you're more in a place where you're pressured to try to beat your high score finally instead of yeah. just you know struggling against the mechanics of the game like you know, I can't tell you how many times those ghosts have cornered me playing Pac-Man over the years. This time I feel like I have the upper hand and the ghosts should fear yeah. me. The Batman game is sort of like a Splinter Cell merged with the Bourne Identity, merged with you know a, a good action platformer. And uh, the graphics hold up. It runs like butter on any system. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real good game, and I'm hoping the second outing is just as good, and it looks like they're really dialing it up a notch and... Looks like he's going to be taking down people that look like Sam Fisher, which I think is kind of fun. <laughs> so I think we're trying to like get out a pecking order between Sam Fisher and you know Batman. But uh, on the flip side, the new Sam Fisher game was kind of like a, a, a nod towards the Born Identity movies, which I guess are now the new spy movie du jour direction everyone's taking in the movie studios, thanks to the Born Identity movies, which are nothing like the books. But in any case, um, so I think... Arkham City, the the trailer looked promising, but of course we didn't see gameplay, so it's hard to tell. But I'm pretty sure that they're going to nail it out of the park. So that it, uh, pretty much wraps up uh, what was covered with the Spike video game. No, no, there is one more. They they oh, they, really? they, okay. they they uh, regurgitated a Portal trailer. Oh well, I mean no, oh. I mean there's a bunch more, but I mean those are the big ones. And since Portal's already been announced, I figured you know. So that's pretty much everything we wanted to cover this time. So let's for the cavern today. This is. Janathus, Jeff, and Morris. Happy holidays, everyone. See you next time. Practically like eating the microphone, but yeah. <laughs> no one's around. Zion. We need their contact information. We need to be like, guys, what the f***? Morris is confused. Somebody just blew heavily on their microphone. It was... 
he blows on his mic. We must hey. kick him out. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm practically eating my microphone in order to get any sound out. And I'm underwater, and I hate that. Oh. I feel like they've nerfed me hard. Bombs could drop in the house, and she wouldn't know. Uh, not a seal, a sea lion. It's a sea bat panther. You just called me a she by accident. That was kind of it- hilarious. <laughs> I stand by my statement. <laughs> All right. You've been enlisted for the cause. Join the Genethus Revolution. Oh, uh, let's just get this over and done with. for another original musical piece by our very own Jeff Wise.
Thank you, Jeff, for another wonderful piece. Another note before we tie off the end of the podcast, and that's Janathus just ran in here to let me know that after the end of the talk, that Riven for the iPhone and iPod Touch came out just after they got done. He reports that it runs very smoothly on his iPhone 4. It looks very good on his retina display, and he bets strangers who have never seen Riven might accidentally become missed converts because it just looks that good. And with that, we come to the end of our podcast. All of us here at the Cavern Today hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. For the Cavern Today, this is Dalton Starbine wishing you happy holidays and signing off. Hello, this is Janathus wishing all of our The Cavern Today listeners a joyous holiday season and a bright, shiny new year in 2011. This is Jeff Wise wishing you a Merry Christmas, or at the very least, a Merry December. Hello, this is Molog wishing every one of our listeners the very best of the Christmas season. Hey everyone, it's Wing wishing you all happy holidays, and if you don't like happy holidays, then stop being such a Scrooge. Hi, this is Mars wishing all of you happy holidays.